The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawkbox. Happy Friday, everyone. Here are your headlines today. Tech stocks take a hit in US and Asian trade with the Nasdaq snapping a three-day winning streak and the Nikkei hitting a four-week low. U.S. producer price inflation hits its highest level since 2010, while a host of Fed speakers take a more hawkish line on the path ahead for rates. I've been off of the transitory uh, team for a while now. I think we need to take action. I think it's appropriate to take action this year. Three is what I've penciled in, but four is not out of the question in my mind. Morning, everybody. Signs of pressure in the world's second largest economy. Chinese imports come in well below expectations and strong global demand helps prop up exports as the trade surplus swells to a new record. We've had some figures out of SAP, the German software business predicting better than expected fourth quarter results and strong guidance for the year as the German company forecasts strong growth in its cloud business. Still a huge amount of rate fears in the market, not helped by some Fed speak. Uh, the commentary is suggesting that March is it. Uh, a lot of Fed speakers now rallying the market behind that date. Uh, don't forget that's a pull forward from expectations of a couple months after that. So, so effectively, you've had a lot of bearish action and repositioning around uh, some of those interest rate uh, scenarios. The markets yesterday turning tail, the Nasdaq in particular, taking a hit 2.5% down. We've had a couple of upbeat sessions for technology, but it was a give back session yesterday. You can see that impacted uh, the S&P 500, the Dow trading down half of a percent. So over the course of the week, as you take a look at how we have performed, it has been the uh, tech area of the market, communication services, where you have seen some weakness uh, below its uh, 50-day moving average now. In terms of uh, what you had over the course of the week, the Nasdaq down roughly about eight to nine-tenths of a percent over the week. So again, fairly modest moves, but uh, there's been a lot of action over the trading period. I want to get into stocks that were moving in the tech space. I mean, Microsoft was the big driver for the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq to the downside. And uh, that stock in particular, you could see falling 4.2%. Very mixed views out there in the marketplace about this company. Don't forget it outperformed the fangs over the course of 2021. Uh, some think uh, the valuations now, as you take a look at the, the interest rate story, is somewhat challenging. But then there are other calls out there that this is a company that will continue to show growth, will continue to be supported around strength in cloud services. So again, you've got a reset button being pressed out there on the markets and stocks like this are being hit uh, across to Apple down close to 2%. And you can see fairly decent falls for Meta platform and also for the likes of Amazon down 2.4%. Treasuries, here's how we stand. It is uh, a session where we are trying to pick up a little bit from those lows, 1.72 where we're trading. We've also moved a little bit higher on that two-year. We're at 0.92 around uh, the shuffling of expectations 
on the timing of that first rate hike. What we've got around U.S. Treasuries this morning, early indication for the Friday trade is positive. So it looks like a little bit of stability will come back into the mix early on this morning. The question is whether that stays, given how much news we've digested. The uh, inflation on this headline act, of course, this week, and we had PPI, the producer prices index, uh, showing a 9.7% gain for the year. So that is, again, another challenging data point for the market as they try and judge just whether we're looking at a series of rate hikes here or uh, just a couple. It's a fairly wide gap in terms of some of those market expectations. Now, tech stocks are also under pressure in Asian trade. Matthew Taylor joining us with more on the market action and some central bank action there too from the Bank of Korea as well. Matt. Yeah, hi there, Karen. It's been a fairly busy day for the Asian markets, mostly trading weaker amid, of course, the declines that we did see in that Wall Street session in particular. Uh, some of the tech-heavy markets, as you mentioned, lower on the back of the 2.5% decline uh, that we did see in the Nasdaq. Some patches of uh, green, though, the Singapore market uh, and the Shenzhen composite are uh, both pointing higher, but uh, a number of these markets trading down by around about 1%. Japan, 1.3% lower, just closing. Australia closing down by about 1%. New Zealand closing off by around about a third of 1%. Uh, let's give you a look at uh, Hong Kong and uh, the tech index there, the Hang Seng Tech Index. You can see uh, the fall on the Nasdaq uh, representing about a 1.4% decline uh, for the HSI Tech Index, the Hang Seng Index overall, uh, only down though by about two-thirds of 1%. Now, South Korean markets uh, looking like uh, this. We've got the Kospi weaker by about 1.3%. We did have the Bank of Korea hiking rates by 25 basis points today, uh, back to pre-pandemic levels of about one and a quarter percent as was widely expected. The high today to rein in inflation. Uh, 2.5% is the inflation rate, uh, though, in South Korea, so fairly low by global standards, but that's still around a decade high. Finally, let's give you a look at the mainland China market. Some mixed trade data out earlier on today. We've got the Shanghai Composite weaker by about two-thirds of a 1% exports beating forecast in December with a rise on year of 20.9%, uh, but imports disappointing uh, up 19.5% against forecasts there uh, for about 24%. So that's that's the China trade data. A bit of a split picture, though, when it comes to those markets there on the mainland. Back to you now in London. Ter terrific, Matt. Thank you very much indeed for that. Let's pick up then on some of the uh, Fed-related stories this morning. And we'll kick off with the data point that we saw yesterday. I think we're looking out for retail sales today. So that'll be interesting from the perspective of getting a handle on consumer strength. But I think there was some interesting uh, news around the producer prices. This is the factory gate number. They popped in December, but it was still a lower number than originally feared. In what many hope now is a sign that price pressures uh, and squeeze supply chains may be starting to ease. The producer price index rose by 0.2% on the month and 9.7% on the year. That is the highest increase for the calendar year since 2010. Uh, meanwhile, on the initial US jobless claims, they rose to 230,000. Now, that was well above estimates and it hit the highest level in almost two months. Continuing claims were down slightly at just over one and a half million to the lowest level since 1973. But it seemed to be the commentary from a lot of the Fed speakers that spooked the market. The Philadelphia Fed President Patrick Harker telling CNBC he expects the US central bank to hike rates three to even four times this year as it fights the rising inflation rate. Harker said the data suggests inflation pressures are actually more sticky 
than the Fed first anticipated. We do need to take action on inflation, and it is more persistent than we thought a while ago. I've been off of the team transitory uh, team for a while now. I think we need to take action. I think it's appropriate to take action this year. Three is what I penciled in, but four is not out of the question in my mind. Well, Harker said he expects the supply bottlenecks and the labour shortages to ease. He also thinks COVID fears will subside. I think we're solving these supply chain problems. The labour supply issues we can talk about. There are lots of reasons why that's being held back. But this will be solved. And I think we'll learn to live with this, uh, this virus. And if we do that, we can start to get the economy back open full throttle. The uh, Federal Reserve Governor Lael Brainard has indicated the U.S. Central Bank could begin lifting interest rates as soon as March, speaking before a Senate confirmation com- um, hearing to become the next Fed chair. Uh, Brainard said the uh, Fed is uh, ready, sorry, Fed vice chair. Brainard said the Fed is ready to begin hiking as soon as it completes its asset purchase program, which is slated to end in two months' time. Well, uh, Janet Moy filed this report following Brainard's confirmation hearing. Fed Governor Lael Brainard's message to lawmakers during her confirmation hearing is that she is willing to go tough on inflation after years of focusing on full employment. Her goal, she said, is to protect the gains the economy has already made, even as the central bank prepares to start pulling back its support. Inflation is too high, and working people around the country are concerned about how far their paychecks will go. Our monetary policy is focused on getting inflation back down to 2% while sustaining a recovery that includes everyone. This is our most important task. Committee Chairman Sherrod Brown credited Brainerd with helping to lead the economy through the pandemic, and he said that she is focused on a worker-centered monetary policy. But that is exactly why there is deep skepticism among some Republicans. The ranking member of the committee, Pat Toomey, has a laundry list of concerns about her nomination, including her views on climate change, her loan dissents on easing bank regulations, and, of course, on inflation. The Fed's recent actions have failed to maintain price stability. Last year, Governor Brainerd repeatedly insisted that inflation was transitory. We've now had nine consecutive months where inflation has been more than two times the Fed's 2% target. That makes it pretty clear that inflation is not transitory. Now, it's still likely that Brainerd gets confirmed. Several Republicans voted for her to become Fed governor, but she's probably not going to see the same level of bipartisan support as Fed Chair Jay Powell. I'm Ilan Moy for CNBC Business News, Washington. So quite an interesting cocktail of news snippets for our audience, our investing audience to conjure with this morning. Um, Didn't help really as we got all of that talk about lifting interest rates from various Fed speakers. And of course, it wasn't just uh, Brainard who was talking or Harker. We had Mary Daly. We had Christopher Waller. They were all out there saying things about the need to focus on the fight against inflation. I think what just slightly um, confused the mix as well is the fact that we had, Karen, that strong uh, number on the claims, 230,000. I think that's the highest number now since November. I guess we can 
um, explain that one away with Omicron for the time being. So we'll just set that to one side. But what what I'm intrigued by is just what the reaction is going to be in European markets to some of these weaker trading sessions as US markets begin to reprice expectations around potentially three to four interest rate moves. Because obviously, as you as you do your bond equity earnings yield ratio maths, Right now, valuations may be okay at the cost of money we currently have in the United States. But as that rate rises, then increasingly you begin to ask questions about the value you're getting in U.S. markets, which is why I think we've seen a lot of flow into Europe and already some into emerging markets as counterintuitively the dollar seems to be falling even as people are concerned about higher interest rates, which is uh, somewhat counterintuitive. But anyway, it's happening. So my question really to our audience is, do you think European markets and other global markets can de-link from the United States? It's not something that we see often. But this time round, I wonder if there is a meaningful argument to suggest that Europe can begin to outperform here um, as we see a very different pace of tightening from the ECB or the, uh, the Federal Reserve. It's hard going, though, isn't it, Jeff? If you look at the market action in Europe so far this week, it's been skittish. You've seen investors uh, very concerned about that international volatility uh, that we're witnessing on equities and uh, some of the growth areas of technology names across international markets. And if you just look at the the week-to-day performance, we have been positive on some of these markets in Europe, uh, particularly on the FTSE. That's been up more than 1%. And that's quite uh, in contrast to some of the challenging trades we've had on the UK stock market over the past 12 months. Other markets have rallied hard. This market only rallied a little bit. But across Europe, I mean, we had the German stock market rallying over the course of this week. It's been up half of a percent. So this is a positive trade versus some weakness on those U.S. markets so far for this week. But where you are seeing a little bit of a wobble, the French market, don't forget uh, more tech components there. It's been somewhat of a high flyer on the European markets. So I think you are seeing a little bit of steam come out of that market. It is weaker over the course of this trading week with those U.S. peers. So I go back to the point, it has been very challenging to separate out European stock markets, even if there is a momentum, even if the fund managers like it and think there's some upside this year. I think it's very hard to park these markets aside from those U.S. peers, given the volatility. A couple of other points here coming back to the Fed and the language. I just wanted to focus on Christopher Waller for a moment. We often talk about some of the others, but uh, this is a hawk, a voting hawk this year. And what you've seen uh, recently, commentary from him suggesting four, uh, maybe five. He's talking about rapid fire, a series of four or five U.S. hikes could be warranted if inflation doesn't recede. And that is the messaging. Don't forget the more hawkish messaging that we've had also from some of the bank chiefs, the markets uh, out there anticipating, well, maybe the Fed has it wrong, that we're not going to have this cool, calm, collected approach to monetary policy. In fact, it's going to be a much stronger shock than some anticipate. So I think just interesting to listen to that messaging and also to remember the constitution of the Fed voting members. We have haven't spoken about this for a while because we've not had to really contemplate how many doves and how many hawks are positioned on the the Fed board. But uh, this time round, I think it's just worth revisiting. Wells Fargo has been looking at it. They say it is composed of two doves. 
by instinct. That's Clarida and Brainerd. But we know Brainerd got a little bit more hawkish overnight and in recent uh, sessions. And there are five hawks. That's Bowman, Waller, Mester, Bullard and George. So worth noting as we talk about this March rate hike and what more could be coming, that uh, the hawks might have the upper hand here, Jeff. Yeah, just to re- reflect on that um, European relative uh, opportunity, I mean, it must be said that the Nasdaq basically began to roll over yesterday after the European markets had closed. So the close we saw yesterday, not really a reflection of a lot of the damage that was done later on in the session. So again, you know, just interesting to see uh, whether we get relative outperformance in the European session today. Here we've got the the German GDP print uh, later on in the morning, which will give us some indication, I guess, of how well that economy has fared through the fourth quarter, even as Omicron began to emerge as a meaningful challenge to uh, healthcare programs in that country. Um, I just wanted to come back to you know your point about the Fed. Obviously, we've got a lot of Fed speakers who are coming out and being very robust on the need for interest rate moves here. It somewhat fits neatly into that idea, doesn't it, that um, Joe Biden could do with a bit of a break when it comes to relieving the inflationary pressure on households and consumers. We know there's been a real cost of living hit from the significant spike in the energy price and the associated rises we've seen in food costs and other product costs. So my point would be here, I think, we need to also think about this not only in oh, the Fed is independent, it makes up its own mind on these issues, but also in terms of the pressure and the guidance and um, uh, the, 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 the suggestions, um, helpful suggestions that it might be getting from the politicians and from the White House here. Because um, as we face the midterms, you can bet that the last thing Joe Biden needs is for people to think that the government has lost control of inflation and prices and that ultimately, even as we see wages rising, they are not keeping up with inflation and people's household wealth, something that Ronald Reagan used to talk a lot about, is actually declining in real terms. Anyhow, there's a lot to talk about on this, but I'll pass it back to you, Karen, for the time being, because I know we're moving on. SAP's cloud computing revenue saw a 28% bump in the fourth quarter to 2.6 billion euros. The German software giant sees segment revenue growing by another 26% this year, contributing to an overall software and cloud revenue rise of 4-6%. Total Q4 revenue came in 6% higher on the year at just under 8 billion euros. SAP is expected to release four-year results on the 27th of this month. Let's get out to Aneta for more. Aneta, not a bad year for SAP last year. This year has been a little bit weaker, down 3.5%, but we have had a route on tech stocks. So give us a sense of what SAP has got and whether there's going to be enough growth here to entice investors over 2022. Well, actually, the numbers actually look quite well, and we have some pre-market indication that the market is also digesting the number set as eating expectations and uh, which might have a positive momentum for the stocks today. If you look, I think, very interestingly at the order backlog, which gives you an idea of how well the business might be doing in 2022, there's a rapid expansion of current cloud backlog to 9.45 billion. This is up by 32%, but even 
Better is the um, HANA database and application platform. They are seeing an, a current cloud backlog performance, which is up by 84%, which is mainly driven by very strong adoption of that uh, rise with SAP program. So um, in, a, in a nutshell, I guess, one can say that the business strategy of Christian Klein who was uh, very much criticized to put all cards on cloud pros, is working out finally. We have that huge slump in the shares when uh, they scrapped their forward guidance in a way um, when <clears throat> it was in October, um, the, the year before, but the shares are doing actually quite well. So we are, don't see the shares yet at that level before uh, they were scrapping their, their forecast, but they're on, on, on a good path towards that trajectory, I would say. So if we look through the numbers, as you were saying, we have revenues from cloud up by 28% for the fourth quarter. This is above their general revenue growth a target of 26% for 2022. And they are also sticking to their um, revenue outlook for 2022, which is 4 to 6% for, for cloud and the traditional software. And I think what's interesting as well, what they call predictable um, revenue, uh, the, the share of predictable revenue is also up to 65%, something which is also positive for the shares because obviously if you have predictable revenues growing, um, your, your business outlook might uh, end up not be that volatile than before, Karen. Yeah. Uh, let me pick up uh, Annette. I'm just digging into some of the detail on this uh, Ukraine story. Um, we're getting some uh, flashes through from AFP uh, saying that Ukraine is reporting a massive cyber attack on government websites. Um, we have looked at some of these uh, Ukrainian government websites. The Foreign Affairs Ministry website is definitely down. The Cabinet website is definitely down. So it does appear that Ukraine is the subject of a significant cyber attack at this point. Um, that's all we know at this stage. Um, obviously, there will be those who draw their own con conclusions about the likely source of that attack at this stage. But we don't have any further information either from the Ukrainians or from anybody else. Um, I will just say, uh, Karen, in passing, I was uh, very interested that there were some comments uh, yesterday from a, a Russian, uh, a top Russian diplomat, uh, suggesting if there wasn't some progress in these uh, discussions over de-escalating the border conflict in Ukraine and on NATO pulling back on its, its aspirations, that um, he couldn't rule out the possible deployment of uh, Russian forces to Cuba. And uh, to Venezuela, I thought very 1962. I'm not quite sure why we seem to be heading back into the Cold War, uh, but that largely seems to be the direction we're heading, uh, given the nature of uh, those talks and how they broke up. But just to come back to that 
headline piece of information. Uh, Ukraine at this point reporting a massive cyber attack on government websites, according to AFP. Interesting you bring up those comments, Jeff, because uh, I think uh, during the conversations that NATO was having, diplomats and some of the officials are saying that the Russians were raking over history and they felt uh, they were a little bit puzzled as to why those developments were being brought up at this point when they're dealing with a, a current conflict and how to de-escalate Ukraine. But as you say, it's been a, a huge week and this is uh, another hit for a country at this stage where many are hoping geopolitical tensions can be solved and whether this is a geopolitical issue or whether it's something else, uh, as you say, remains to be seen. Now, coming up on the show, Chinese trade figures point to pressure in the world's second largest economy. We'll have the details after the break. And can I commend to you the Squawk Box podcast? You'll find it where all good podcasts are delivered. You can also go to the website, of course, to catch up with that. It should deal with all your Federal Reserve related needs. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. Chinese exports and imports grew more slowly than expected in December as the world's second largest economy shows signs of pressure. Imports up by 19.5% in December. That was well below expectations of 26.3% and well off the 31.7% we saw in November. Exports were up nearly 21% year-on-year amid strong global demand. China's trade balance topped forecasts, uh, widening sharply to over $94 billion. Um, And it's not in my read, but I will mention it. The surplus with the United States. Do you remember this is the surplus that's supposed to be going down, that President Trump uh, said would get smaller? The surplus was $39.23 billion US dollars. Let's get to Sam, who joins us with more on these numbers. Uh, and Sam, why the decline? Why the sharp drop from the November data point to December in terms of imports? Good morning to you, Jeff. Yeah, you asked a fair question, though. I would say, uh, you know, broadly speaking, it's interesting in terms of how you look at this data, because, of course, the folks over at HSBC are still saying that this is providing tailwinds. And that is because, as you mentioned, we're still looking at pretty strong double digit growth when it comes to the exports and the imports, albeit slightly slower uh, in December. Those exports, as you mentioned, did come in a smidge higher than expectations. And that rounded out the year at 30% high. Now, of course, we do need to factor in that low base effect uh, in 2020. Those exports, though, have remained surprisingly resilient throughout the last 12 months. Of course, as we know, demand for goods out of China has still remained strong. Things like PPE and medical supplies and also electronics, as we are, as you can see here, in a work-from-home environment. China has also continued to be one of the only countries in the world that is operating more or less as normal. We've also seen exports shifting to China from places like India. So that all factors 
factored in. But while we have, of course, seen this remaining a bright spot and really being a key driver, uh, certainly in this economic recovery, to answer your question, uh, Jeff, of course, we have seen some of these overseas shipments starting to ease. We do know, of course, some of these exporters continue to face these higher cost pressures despite some of these commodity prices starting to cool. Now, when it comes to the import side of things, of course, that did miss expectations. It was quite a surprise. That was, of course, on softening domestic demand. This was down to a number of factors. We know Omicron, the fear factor around that is starting to weigh on domestic demand. One of the uh, big uh, cities in focus at the moment is Tianjin. This is a port city, and that is certainly fueling some of those worries that we could see a bit of a disruption to supply chains. So certainly keeping and I on that situation. We are looking at colder months now where construction does start to slow down. Of course, the slowing uh, property sector also factored into that as well. And as you say, that all brought the trade surplus actually to a record high in the month of December. Guys, back to you in London. Sam, while we've still got you, um, it's been a generally weak session in the Asian markets this morning following off from the uh, sell-off we saw in the United States. But one notable standout, I think, has been Evergrande. And we, we continue to watch Evergrande to see how this story continues to resolve itself. Uh, what's the news on Evergrande? Why have the shares popped? It's been thrown a bit of a, a lifeline, you could say, Jeff. It's uh, getting a bit of a, a bit of breathing room, you could say. It's now uh, actually secured a payment extension. It's now uh, been given the approval by its onshore bondholders now to actually uh, push back one of its obligations on one of its uh, bonds. This is in order to, evo- uh, to avoid a default, of course, because that would complicate things in terms of any potential restructuring at the company. So we're now looking at the main unit that is Hengdar Real estate actually coming out saying uh, that it has reached a deal with the bondholders yesterday to have this uh, debt obligation actually pushed back. Now, it's looking now at a six-month delay to payments on a four and a half billion yuan uh, bond. That was due on January the 8th. We are also seeing that that bond has been suspended since uh, January the 6th, trading in that bond, and that will resume on Monday. We are now hearing. But of course, uh, there has been some suggestion that this move really comes as no surprise. There has been some expectation expectations that certainly these onshore bondholders are very hopeful that they can sort this situation out. Of course, Evergrande has been meeting these uh, debt obligations when it comes to its onshore bonds. It has been making uh, these payments, clearing these hurdles when it comes to the offshore dollar bonds. That is a bit of a different story because, of course, as we've been reporting on uh, over recent months, it has uh, made a few defaults when it comes to those offshore bonds. And there has been a lot of chatter, a lot of talk within the market uh, that certain Certainly, Evergrande is prioritising its onshore bonds uh, over its offshore bonds. But of course, uh, it's not the only one, Karen, that we are seeing uh, trying to negotiate terms of these uh, debt obligations and trying to free up some much needed cash. This is something we are starting to see uh, broadly in the property sector, these signs of stress. Karen, back to you. Thanks for the latest on Evergrande there, Sam. Much appreciated. Elsewhere, the UK's domestic intelligence service MI5 warned lawmakers over possible interference in Parliament by a lawyer employed by the Chinese Communist Party. MI5 alleges the London-based lawyer, identified as Christine Lee, has been involved in donations to political parties on behalf of foreign nationals in Hong Kong and China. British Home Secretary Priti Patel called the allegations deeply concerning, but the Chinese embassy in London denied the allegations, saying it does not interfere in UK internal affairs.
Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.